following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from Life Point Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. 1 John chapter 2, and uh, we are going to uh, take a break this morning from the Sermon on the Mount uh, to look at uh, a different passage. So we, uh, we just ended kind of a, a major block of the Sermon on the Mount last week. Uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 18, so I thought it was a good time uh, to revisit our theme for the year, uh, Devoted to God. So uh, we have, uh, I, I've preached four sermons so far uh, this year, 2021, uh, on our theme, and so we've talked about the fact, beginning way back, first Sunday of January, um, uh, about the fact that, that God purchased us on the cross, and therefore He has the right to demand that we present our bodies, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to Him. And, and so because of that, but we also saw that, that it is a wonderful privilege that we have been set apart from the world to God. You know, we, we shouldn't sit here today and, and lament and, and bemoan the fact that God has called us out of the world to Himself. And we saw in 1 Peter 2 that, that, that it is a privilege that, that we are God's special people that He is fitting into a temple for Himself. And then we also saw that that we have the power in Christ to to live lives that are devoted to God. God hasn't just given us a a mission that we cannot possibly fulfill. He has given us the power to do so. So we've spent uh, these four sermons basically talking about where it is that we are going. That being devoted to God means that we are pursuing Christ. We want to be like Him. And I want to emphasize that you will never think rightly about holiness until your focus is squarely on the person you are chasing. I want to be like my Savior. But it's also true that I will only understand how I am to pursue Christ if I also have a keen sense of what I have to leave behind in order to do that. You know, so Hebrews chapter 12, 1 and 2, uh, talk about the fact that I can only run to Jesus as I lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. So I have to think about, if I'm going to run well, I've got to leave some stuff behind. And I've got to think about what it is I need to leave behind. And frankly, that's where the pursuit of holiness becomes a little bit more difficult. Because we all love our sin. Right? We, we don't really want to leave it behind, and, and so we often struggle. We're like Lot's wife, and we're running this way because we know we have to, but our heart is back in Sodom, and we're looking back, longing for the things that we have to leave. And as well, this is where the pursuit of holiness gets difficult because we don't always agree about what things we need to leave behind and what things we can take with us in the pursuit of holiness. And so Christians sometimes can become divisive, and and there can be strife that develops as as we think about the difference between holiness and worldliness in particular. So our text for today is a very important passage as we think about our theme for the year. And so let's go ahead and read 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17. God's Word says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world... The love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, 
the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. This really is a profound little passage of Scripture. Because in a few short words, John tells us so much about the human heart and about what makes the human heart tick. And he also says a lot about the cultures that humans produce. And it also gives us some vital guidance for how we are to live holy lives in the midst of a godless world. And so this passage begins with a very important command. So so God commands us, do not love the world or the things in the world. Now, now at first glance, that sounds simple enough, right? Don't love the world. But but where it gets tricky is, is in defining, well, what exactly is the world that we're not supposed to love? So I think we can immediately recognize that he's not telling us not to love the world of humanity. Because John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So, so God would not tell us to hate the very people that he died for. I think we can also assume that he's not telling us that we cannot love the planet, that, that we should despise the earth, because that would just sort of be odd. No, no instead, I think when you look at the passage as a whole, it's clear that John is forbidding what we oftentimes call worldliness. And I say that because when you look at the passage as a whole, it's clear that that he's not so much concerned about loving people or or loving the planet. His concern is with sin and and with a world system. So so the concern here is worldliness. Now, now that's a word that we throw around relatively often. That's worldly or or, or don't be a worldly person. Uh, but, But oftentimes... We struggle to know what exactly is that? What is worldliness? So, so, so this text uh, does a great job of defining for us what worldliness is. And, and here is my attempt to summarize exactly what it says. So worldliness is an anti-God, temporal, value and philosophy system that shapes life in rebellion against God. Now that's kind of a wordy Long definition, so, so let's play it out. So, so first of all, worldliness is a philosophy and value system. Now, now, this is an important one, because when we talk about worldliness, the moment that I mention that I'm going to bring up worldliness, it, it might be that, that you immediately want to think about certain activities, right? You know, so, so uh, what can I watch? What can I not watch? What, what can I wear? What can I not wear? And we immediately want to think about what activities or things are worldly and what things are not. And I want to be clear that that discussion matters, all right? So so verse 17 says that the one who does the will of God abides forever. So at some point, I've got to define what the will of God is, and I've got to do it, all right? But John also teaches that worldliness is fundamentally about what I love, not about what I do, right? So verse 15 says, do not love the world. And verse 16 talks about three desires or, uh, or, or three impulses of the flesh that, that are the driving force of worldliness. 
So, so we need to understand that worldliness is fundamentally not a style of dress or a style of music or, or a particular pop culture. Worldliness is a heart condition. It is, as I say there, a philosophy of life. It is a way of viewing the world. And, and that way of viewing the world drives me to certain values or priorities, which in turn drive my behavior. Now, now coming up, uh, beginning next Sunday night, we're going to spend several Sunday nights uh, talking uh, about uh, identifying worldliness in myself and as well identifying worldliness in the culture. Um, but, but, I, but we need to understand, and that discussion matters, but I first must understand and I first must focus on my philosophy and my values, how I look at the world, because, because that's really the root of it all. And more than I need to ask, what's wrong with this? I need to do the hard work of examining what's the philosophy and the values that drive what people do or don't do. So, so worldliness is a philosophy and value system. And secondly, uh, we jumped ahead, of worldliness is anti-God. So notice that verse 15 says, uh, do not, uh, the end of verse 15 says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. All right, I guess, uh, there we go. Uh, it's anti-God. All right, so, so he says there that, that, that the love of the world and love for the Father is the idea, is not, they, they, they are incompatible. So, so worldliness exists anytime anything rebels against God. Or, or you could add that worldliness is present anytime something rivals God in my heart. I think you could also say that worldliness is present anytime that we try and, and look at anything or think about anything or, 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 or philosophize about something without putting God at the center of it. If I simply don't account for God, and I think purely in terms of how unbelievers think. That's worldly. You know, so for example, I mean, you could listen to the absolute most morally and socially conservative political commentary on the planet. But, but if it is not coming from an expressly biblical worldview, you know, shaped by the glory of God and, and biblical priorities, there is going to be an element of worldliness in it. Now, now, that's not to say that you can't listen to it or benefit from it or that it's necessarily sinful. But, but folks, we do have to understand that all of life for a Christian turns around God and God's priorities. And, and anything, any philosophy, value system, opinion that is not rooted in that is ultimately going to fall short. So then third, worldliness is focused on temporal priorities rather than eternal ones. So, so notice that verse 17 says, And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. So, so, so that verse tells us that, that a worldly mindset is consumed with the present. It's a mindset that is wrapped up in this life rather than eternity. So, so yes, all right? You know, we could pick all sorts of things. I mean, Playboy is clearly worldly, right? But you know, anytime I look at life or approach life 
or build my values for life with, with, a, with an obsession with this world rather than the next. I am essentially worldly. And then fourth, worldliness does not necessarily mean pursuing bad things. It can also mean pursuing the right things in the wrong order. So, so notice that the verse 15 includes the prohibition. It doesn't just say, do not love the world. It also says, do not love the things in the world. Now, now what's he mean there? Well, well he means there that, that anything can become sinful. Anything can become sinful if it's in the wrong order. All right, so, so for example, it is a good thing if you're in school uh, for you to do well in school. It, it's a good thing if you have a job for you to, to do an excellent job at your employment. But, but the moment that success begins to take priority over God and, and God's priorities, that is an expression of worldliness. So in sum, again, worldliness is an anti-God temporal value and philosophy system that shapes life in rebellion against God. So it means that rather than basing my values and priorities on the reality of God and His will, that that we get our values and our priorities from a world which is opposed to God and, and focused on the moment rather than on eternity. And what does God tell us to do with this? He says, do not love the world. That we need to reject the the philosophy and values of lost humanity. And instead, we need to embrace a radically different value and philosophy system that drives us to a very different lifestyle. Now, Now, I'll tell you right now that the difference is not always obvious. It is not always obvious, and it is complicated. And so, so I've got to work hard to identify the, the worldliness that's in my own heart, and I've got to work really hard to identify worldliness in the culture. And, and Lord willing, again, next Sunday night, we'll start talking about how you can do that. So, but but it, is, it is a challenging thing, folks, and it is an important thing. It is vitally important. But maybe you sit there and think, well, I don't know, Pastor. Maybe it's not that important. I mean, I I really like my life in this world, and I really like the things of the world. Is it really important that I not love the world? Well, well, John knew that you were going to ask, and so he follows with two reasons why a Christian must not love the world. So, So the first reason we must not love the world is that you cannot love the world and love God at the same time. Look at what he says at the end of verse 15. He says, if anyone loves the world... The love of the Father is not in him. So John is clear that that love for God excludes love for the world and vice versa. Love for the world excludes love for God. You know, Jesus said it this way in the text that we're going to, Lord willing, look at next Sunday morning. He said in Matthew 6, verse 24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. So so both Jesus and John tell us that that love for the world is incompatible with love for and devotion to God. They they simply can't go together. Now, all right, so so this brings us to uh, an important longstanding debate within Christianity uh, about 
how we as Christians relate to the culture in which we live. And, and kind of the, the classic expression of, of this debate, this question, is a book uh, called Christ and Culture. And uh, Richard Niebuhr uh, wrote this book in, in 1951. It's gone through a couple of editions since. Uh, but it was a very, very foundational book. And in that book, he identifies five ways that Christians view culture. All right, And, and on the one end of the spectrum, uh, he had a view that he called a christ of culture, the Christ of culture. And, and according to that view, uh, human cultures are essentially an expression of Christ. That, that what you see in the world and what you see in you know, cultural customs and dress and, and entertainment, that those are all essentially an expression of who Jesus is worked out in humanity. And so most of it's pretty good. You know, of course, there's bad things in every world because sinners there. But basically, everything in culture is good. It's an expression of Jesus. On the other end of the spectrum is a view that Niebuhr called Christ against culture. And that view would be to say that, that, that basically everything in culture is bad. Everything in culture is evil. And so if the world does it, it's bad and Christians shouldn't do it. Now, now hopefully you can see right away that this is a really practical debate, right? That, 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 that how what my stance is towards the culture is going to dramatically affect all sorts of things about how I live. And one of the other views that, that Niebuhr mentions is Christ, um, is Christ the transformer of culture. So, so in that view, you know, our goal, you know, basically the things in the world are, are not too bad, and so Christ is there to redeem and, and to fix the things in the culture. So, so basically, we should take whatever the culture is doing, and we can kind of you know, dress it up a little bit, and Christ can redeem it, and, and we can use it pretty much uh, as it is. But of course, on the other hand, if you believe that culture is essentially evil, well, then our homes and our churches are going to look very different. Now, now, our text, I believe, does not directly answer the question. Of, of what is Christ's relationship to culture. Because I believe that worldliness and culture are not exactly the same thing. All right? So after all, I mean, biblical values and biblical thinking can influence culture. So, so to the extent that, that our culture or any culture is consistent with biblical values, that, then we are free to embrace it. So, so I would reject the idea of Christ against culture, all right? Um, but this text is also very helpful in, in warning us that worldliness is deeply embedded in all of us. And because worldliness is deeply embedded in all of us, well, it's naturally going to be deeply embedded in the culture that sinners create. There is no such thing as a truly Christian culture that's out there in the world produced by depraved sinners. So, so our text is very important for helping us identify worldliness in the culture and, and discerning how to live holy lives in, in, the, in the cultures that sinners create. So, so verse 16 then goes on to identify three core values of worldliness that shape uh, how sinners think, that shape us, that shape other sinners, and ultimately shape culture. So the first value is the lust of the flesh. What's he say? He says, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father. So, 
So what is the lust of the flesh? Well, well, the lust of the flesh refers to sinful passions which arise from within my heart. So, so it is a temptation and impulse to sin that comes from inside me. Now, now, oftentimes, the lust of the flesh starts with things that in and of themselves are not bad. So your body gets hungry and desires food. Your body gets tired and desires rest. Your body desires sexual pleasure and fulfillment. And those things are not bad in and of themselves. But, but the issue is, is that because of our sin nature, those things very frequently get out of order, right? So, so we want more than we want them more than we want God. Or, or we want them in ways that God has forbidden. And so these good things that God has given us, these desires that help us survive and thrive, turn into laziness. Gluttony, substance abuse, immorality, and all sorts of other forms of rebellion against God. And John warns us here that these things are deeply embedded in all of us. And they shape our our values and our philosophy. So, you know, when, 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 when we see the lust of the flesh, you know, driving a song or a movie or a cultural practice, then we need to recognize that and see how it is appealing to us and reject it. So the lust of the flesh. Secondly, John mentions the lust of the eyes. And this concept is closely related to the first one. The difference is is that rather than the temptation coming from inside me, it comes from outside me. So so the lust of the eyes would be um, that it comes from things that we see. Primarily, but I think as well, you could extend that to your other senses. That the lust of the flesh or the lust of the eyes would, would probably include as well things that you smell or touch, uh, taste, uh, things of that nature. So, so for example, all right, you, know, you leave church today, you're loving Jesus, and you walk into Target afterwards or some other store. You know, Tractor Supply would be where I would go. And... Uh, and you walk in there loving Jesus, and then you see something that you really want. And all of a sudden, your contentment in God is overwhelmed with a desire for this thing. You want it. And, um, you know, it could be that, that you see a person. You know, you're content in Jesus, and your contentment in Jesus is overwhelmed with, with jealousy for what another person has, or, or their life situation, or their status. You know, it could be an advertisement. That, that you see on TV or you see on a billboard or in a magazine that, that causes you to lust after a car or a truck or uh, some other item that, that you desperately want to have. Of course, something like pornography feasts on the lust of the eyes because it th- puts things in front of us and it uses our eyes to attract us to sin. Now, now, a lot of the things that, that I mentioned in, in those illustrations, not all of them, but some of them are, are not bad in and of themselves. But, but, but the problem is, is that I am seeing the world not with eyes of faith that are focused on eternity. I'm seeing the world through my eyes for this life. And so God and His eternal glory are not driving my passions and my heart. No, instead, my eyes dominate my values. 
Of course, the advertising industry has become a master at manipulating the lust of the eyes, right? You know, they are very good at, at, at manipulating you and, and setting things in front of you. I mean, that's their whole job is to sell you on the fact that you cannot be happy without this thing or that this item will, will, will satisfy your heart in a way that you can't be happy without it. Now, that doesn't mean that every advertisement you see is bad or evil or that you can't watch a commercial or laugh at a commercial. But, but it does mean that I need to be very careful to, to identify worldliness, especially here, but out there, and reject it. And I need to make sure that faith, not sight, drives my values and philosophy of life. And then the third core value of worldliness is the pride of life. Now, now John here in this phrase, pride of life, uses two uh, rather unique terms for pride and life. Um, so, so the word for pride is the word alazonea, and this word is an unusual word for pride that speaks of a boastful pride that wants everyone to see me and everyone to glorify me. It's a boasting, you know, look at me type idea. And the word for life is not the normal word for life, it's the word bios. Of course, we get our word biology from this word. And it's a word that refers or it emphasizes physical life over and above spiritual life. So the pride of life highlights the desire to boast in the things of this world, to, to glory in the things of, of, of the physical life over and above the spiritual life, and to build my image and my glory in those things. Now, now I want to emphasize today that we don't all express the pride of life in the same way. Now, some people do like to beat their chests, you know, and look at me, and, and they want everyone to see them and notice them, and, and they're loud and boisterous. Other people express the pride of life by hiding behind their insecurities. It can go both ways. But all of us, all of us naturally care a lot about how people view us. We care about image, and we want to receive glory from men. Now, that doesn't mean that you should feel guilty anytime you look good or feel good. But a godly heart is always focused on turning the attention from my glory to God. I want to praise Him. I want to thank Him. I want to rejoice in His grace, not in who I am and what I have done. But the reality is, is the pride of life drives a lot of the world in which we live. I mean, we just, isn't it interesting, we just finished looking at Matthew 6, 1 through 18, where, where Jesus talks about how the hypocrites in Judaism had taken three good practices of, of, of piety, giving, prayer, and fasting. And they had turned them into a means of self-glory, a way to boast in themselves. And of course, we can take the pride of life in all sorts of other directions as well. You, know, you can be obsessed with fashion. You can be obsessed with you know, having a certain muscle car or truck or uh, other you know, form of clothing or, or all sorts of things that we have in culture that, that identify us and, and give us an image. And we need to be very cautious about how we look at those things and who we are trying to glorify by how we live. So, so these three little phrases provide really a genius summary of the sin nature. Now you can look through the temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden. You can look at how Satan went after Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. You can see time and time again, and you can see in your own life, 
how the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life summarize how our sin nature operates. And John follows by warning us that these things are not from God, but they are of the world. Now, now that statement at the end of verse 16 repeats essentially what he said in verse 15. And it drives home the fact that worldliness is opposed to godliness. John says, you cannot love God and be enslaved to these ideas. And by extension, you cannot love God and be at home in a world that is dominated by these masters. And yet, isn't it true that so often we try and hedge ourselves, right? I mean, we want to serve God, but at the same time, we like to indulge our passions. And we want to conform to the world around us. But Jesus said, you cannot serve two masters. You've got to pick one. And so we need to recognize today that that this world is not a friend of grace. So so I have to make a decision. I mean, am I going to love Christ? Or am I going to love the world? You you cannot have both. Now, now as long as we have a sin nature, we're going to fight, right? I mean, it's it's not like you can sit here today and say, God... I reject worldliness, and poof, it's gone, right? That's not the way it works, all right? I mean, John understands that because he commands Christians, do not love the world, all right? John gets that. But, but, but as, at the same time, you can, while you can't remove these things altogether, John is saying that you have to set a direction. Am I going to love the world, or am I going to love the Father? What is going to drive the values and the commitments of my life? And in fact, within the broader context of 1 John, John is ultimately warning that if you choose love for the world over the love for the Father, that it probably indicates that you have never received Christ to begin with. This is a big deal. If my heart is dominated by the flesh as opposed to Christ, it indicates a serious issue. So, so, so folks, we're, we're, this is not, I mean, John's not toying around here. This matters. And I need to commit myself to pursue God and say no to this world. And before we move on, you know, let's just return for a moment to Niebuhr's question about Christ's relationship to culture. So, so how should verses 15 and 16 affect the way you look at society's entertainment? It's media, it's fashion, and and various customs. I think it clearly means that we should look at all of it with a cautious and, I think, conservative perspective. You know, that our our impulse should not be, if the world does it, I'm going to do it too. That our impulse should be to say, you know, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life are at the core of sinners. And we ought to assume that those things drive what sinners do. And so rather than just, you know, drinking in whatever you see or hear, I should be a conservative person who is careful and thoughtful 
about how I approach the world, to, to think well about what the world does. You know, I'll add that, that we want to do that as a church. You know, that our goal as a church is not to redeem the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Our goal is to stand opposed to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now, now, now we're not looking to be weird for the sake of being weird, right? Because there are good things in culture, and some things are purely innocent. And, and I think as well that, that, that we've got to be careful that we do not create unnecessary roadblocks to ministry. So if we do weird things for no purpose that make unbelievers feel uncomfortable and we are putting up a roadblock to the gospel, that does not honor God. So, so we, we don't want to be weird for the sake of being weird, but we also want to be very clear about the fact that, that we belong to Christ. And, and you know, you, you hear stuff like, you know, at times about, you know, unbelievers, you know, I mean, if an unbeliever walks into church and it feels the same as if he just walked into a nightclub, that's a problem because the church should feel different. Now, now not in just the sense of being dorky or odd for the sake of being dorky and odd, but it should feel different. And, and so we need to think about those things. So, so the first reason believers must not love the world is that you cannot love God and love the world at the same time. And, and the second reason is that the world is temporary. So so verse 17 says, And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. So so that verse sets up a contrast uh, between the temporary and and fading nature of of this world, and and, and as well, the eternal life that that belongs to God's children. And and two things are at stake uh, in this contrast. So, So the first thing that's at stake is that Jesus has already defeated the world system. That that, that through his death on the cross and through his triumphal resurrection, that that he has conquered the world. And as he says here, it is passing away. So folks, the world system is a defeated enemy. It is on its way to annihilation. And in contrast, those who possess Christ's eternal life, we are victorious. And we are going to live forever. I mean, look over at chapter 5, because chapter 5 gives us some really good encouragement as we think about the world. Because the world is, it pulls, right? It pulls at our hearts. So that's what John says in, in 1 John 5, verse 3. He says, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And that's so encouraging because when we look around the world system, we we look at at our, our culture, I mean, it can just feel overwhelming at times, right? Like, man, we are losing and we're getting smaller by the day. But the reality is, is the world is not winning. The world system is on a death march, and we are moving towards glory. We will be with Christ forever. So do not ever forget that you are on the winning side. And do not ever think that that the world system 
is enough to overwhelm you. If you are in Christ, you are an overcomer. And greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. He says uh, later on in 1 John. So, so, so the world system is dying. And then the second thing that John is saying in verse 17 is that the world's pleasures are temporary. And, uh, and, so, and, and in contrast to that, he says back in chapter uh, 2, verse 17, that the one who does the will of God abides forever. So, so the choice couldn't be clear, right? I mean, when you love the world and pursue the world, you are embracing a, a defeated, dying system that can only offer momentary pleasure and happiness. Whereas loving God means that you are on the winning side and you will live with Christ forever. You will enjoy His goodness and grace for all of eternity. So so the question that John is putting before us in this passage is which option will you choose? Will you love the world or will you love God? It might be that there's someone here today that, that for years... You have been scared to receive Christ as Savior because you do not want to leave the world behind. And you know that if you repent of your sins and believe on Christ, that He is going to demand things of you that that you don't want. And, And so your love for the world has kept you from loving the Father and submitting to Him. You know, it might be that that you've been able to convince people for years that you're a Christian. But but you know in your heart that the world drives your priorities, not Jesus. And I hope that you'll see today that you are staking your soul on a dying hope. The world is passing away. And and so I hope that you will repent of your sin and cast yourself on Christ. Repent and be saved. Because Jesus has overcome the world. And he satisfies in a way that the world never will. And there is life for all of eternity in him. So, so if you're trying to straddle that fence, serve two masters, love the world, love God, jump on over to Christ. And if you have questions about how to be saved, how you can know Jesus is your Savior, we would love to talk with you today and, and help you know that you are saved. But of course, even after we get saved, we all struggle to some extent with loving the world. But I know I do. And I'm sure you do too. That the world tugs on our hearts because the world is deep in my own heart. You know, I I mean, I'm partly to blame for the sin that's in the world because it arises from me too. And John gets that, which is why he commands believers in verse 15, do not love the world. And and so we all understand that. That that Satan, that that our hearts are are evil, we are filled with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And Satan is the master advertiser. And our flesh is a magnet for his appeals. And so often we desperately want to satisfy our passions. And and, you know, we begin to believe that, that the cares and concerns of this world are all that there really is. But you know, verse 17 puts it all in perspective. When it says, the world is passing away. So so whatever it is that, that, that obsesses your heart, just understand today that it's passing away. 
So, so no matter how fun a sin may be, that pleasure never lasts. And it never satisfies either. You know, which is why when people uh, deal with addictive behaviors, th- those addictive behaviors tend to spiral into more and more destructive behaviors all the time. But because a little never satisfies. And so I always have to go deeper and push harder. And I always come up empty. And if you love the things of the world or the approval of the world, you're always going to face the same problem. And you may have some great moments. Sin can be a lot of fun. But the reality is, is that it fades quickly. And that's because it's a defeated enemy. So so why would I waste my life chasing a defeated and fleeting goal? Especially when 